It's good to see you here this morning. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 10 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please turn in, tune there with me. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some in the back there by the sound booth. You can grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, take it with you. We want you to have it. We want you to read it um, and take that home with you. So 2 Samuel chapter 10. So we're at this, this interesting place now. In 2 Samuel, we've now, since we've transitioned from 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel, actually things have, have changed a bit, shifted, the tale has shifted a little bit from Israel's transition from a monarchy, or from a, uh, from a uh, theocracy to a monarchy, and now what we're seeing now is that it's becoming now, the story is an account of David's reign as the king, and understandably so, David is the man that God has chosen to be king over his people, Israel, and he did that all the way back, as we look back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, it's taken a long time for him to get there, right? He's, he's dodged many bullets, or actually spears from, from Saul, right? And he's, he's been in the wilderness. He's been uh, hiding out in, in caves, retreated even into enemy territory. But all the while, we see that God has been with him. And that's the reason that he has been victorious, that he's gotten to the place where he is, he is now. Since his anointing, God has been his source of his safety, his security. God's taken him from... Being a shepherd boy, now into a mighty king. And, and even though he hasn't followed God perfectly, God has been with him. And none of us do, if we're all honest, right, with ourselves, that we don't follow God perfectly the way that we'd like to and that we try to. But God is continually faithful to David. He's continually faithful to us. He's established his king, David, over Israel. And, and, and he's going to now lead his people. And so we see now this morning, this chapter is really an interesting one. And it's also a kind of an important one, really, when we look at it. Its, it's details are a little lacking um, from chapter 8 as far as what David's military victories are. But we look back to chapter 8, verses 3 through 8 specifically. We see exactly in this chapter what was happening back in that chapter. We see during David's military campaigns here that he's defeated Hadadazar and the Syrians of Damascus. And as a result, they will eventually now become the servants of David. Well, this morning we see exactly how that transpires. It gives us this chapter, in a sense, looks back to and gives us context to what happened before in chapter 8. But also, what's intriguing about this chapter is it also provides the context for what's going to be coming forward in chapter 11 and 12. It's going, to, it's going to show us what all the context is behind that, the unfolding story in those two chapters. We're going to be reintroduced now this morning to the Ammonites. And David's commanders, Joab and, and, and Abishai, are going to defeat them. They're going to have a little bit of a skirmish with them and come out, come out on top victorious. And we'll get to that shortly. But, but the details of these battles actually will end up becoming a backdrop for... David's relationship with Bathsheba in chapter 11. And also, it's going to signal the beginning of the end for the Ammonites. Spoiler alert, they're going to be defeated in chapter 12, ultimately. So, so and, and those are those the way in which the, the, this passage this morning looks backwards for context and looks forward to give us context for what's coming uh, after this. But another important aspect of this chapter is that, like chapter 8, it's going to give us a little bit of a peek into the kingdom of God. It's going to give us uh, a, king, a peek into God's kingdom where his anointed one rules with justice and equity. Where his, his king is going to vanquish the enemies of God and is going to establish proper order in Israel and in, 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 in the territories surrounding Israel as well. And these, if you look back in chapter 7, are the very qualities 
that God had promised to give David in chapter 7 when he said he would make David's name famous and that he was going to appoint a place for his people Israel, a land for their own. One, one promise that was formally promised to back all the way in Genesis chapter 15 with Abraham and now we're seeing it promised again in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel to David in the Davidic covenant. And then we see that God says that peace and rest is going to fill the boundaries of this kingdom And then finally we see that God declares that he will build David a house. Meaning that he's going to establish a throne, eternal throne. A royal dynasty that's going to follow in David's posterity forever and ever. It says back in chapter 7 verse 16 through the prophet Nathan, God tells him this. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that we we read about. And when we see the qualities of the kingdom of God in David's reign as king over Israel, and that God is fulfilling his covenantal promises, it should really draw attention more away from David and toward Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate fulfillment of those promises. But there's also one last thing that we can learn from this chapter this morning, and that's going to be what we're spending a majority of our time with today, and that is... All this fulfillment of prophecy is made possible and God's promises are sure because of God's has said. His covenantal love, His kindness, His faithfulness to His people and to His promises. The supreme king, the, the, the divine kingdom are both born out of the covenantal kindness and love of God for His people. And this is the theme that's, that's going to connect these chapters together. And it's, it's a theme that resounds throughout the course of, of biblical, uh, the grand biblical narrative, really. We heard it back in chapter 7, and then we saw it beautifully illustrated and reflected in chapter 9, God has said, as David shows kindness to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. And now we're going to see David is going to continue his campaign of covenantal kindness by offering it to another son. Just as he had shown kindness to Mephibosheth for the sake of his, his father, Jonathan, now David is going to show kindness to Hanun for the sake of his father, Nahash. But as we'll see, David receives a very different response to his, his kindness. Whereas Mephibosheth earlier bowed in gratitude to David's kindness, now we're going to see Hanun and the, the, the Ammonites are going to outright reject his kindness. And that's why I titled this, this morning's sermon, the, the King's Kindness Rejected. So now let's look at God's Word this morning. Let's read God's Word, 2 Samuel chapter 10. Hopefully you've had enough time now to, to, turn, to, to turn there with me. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun the son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun the son of Nahash, and his father, as his father dealt loyal with, loyally with me. So David sent his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to search, you, search the city and spy it out to overthrow it? And Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. And when it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. 
When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Mekah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard it, he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Mekah were themselves in the open country. When Joab saw the battle was set against him from both the front and the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come to help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Syrians and, against, and they fled before them. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam and Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadazar, at their head. And when he told, and it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. And the Syrians arrayed themselves against David and, against, and fought against him. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed all the Syrians of the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 foot uh, horsemen, and wounded Shobach the king, or the commander of the army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. The word of the Lord. So, this morning, to help us understand what we just read, the passage, I, I've divided it into four different parts. Sympathy, shame, skirmish, and lastly, serenity. We're going to look at it in, those, in, the, in that order. So first, let's turn to sympathy. We see that it's come to David's attention now that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, has died. And he's determined to show loyalty to Nahash's son, Hanun. And actually, the word here... You could easily miss it if we're just looking at the English translation here. But if we look at this word closely, this is the same word, loyalty that's used here, is the same word back in chapter 9, verse 1, that's translated as kindness. So both of these English words, kindness, loyalty, kind of, if you look at them, they, they really give a, a, two different understandings, or at least two different aspects, or two different flavors of one Hebrew word, which is hesed, like we talked about last week. And last week, if you remember, Pastor Lou reminded us that hesed refers to covenantal loyalty, kindness, and love. And when we hear that word, it should immediately trigger in our, in our minds God's hesed, right? His steadfast love. And now, we see David is taking hesed, he's showing, extending this hesed, this kindness, this, this goodness, this faithfulness, loyalty, as it's translated here, to Hanun. And what makes this especially shocking when you think about it is that he's extending this loyalty, this kindness, and this love to someone who's outside the the borders of Israel. He's expressing this kindness to this this foreign leader, this dignitary of a foreign nation. A nation, if we look 
back not too far in, in, in uh, Israel's history, was at one point Israel's enemy. If you look back at chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 11, when Nahash was still alive, Saul was still alive, it, it says that Nahash actually seized the, the city of Jabesh Gilead. If you remember the story there, it seemed as though after this had happened, all the, the men that were left that, that, they had, that hadn't been killed in Jabesh Gilead, uh, their only way out seemed was to make this, this tree, this peace tree with, with uh, Nahash. And what, do you remember what his response is? He says, I'm, I'll make you a peace tree on this one condition. I'm going to gouge out all of your right eyes, and I'm going to disgrace all of Israel. Those were the terms of, of his peace treaty. And then what we see happening is Saul, who was at that point early in his, early in, in his kingdom here, uh, as, in his reign as king, his anger is, is, is boiling now against Nahash. And so he, he, comes, he, he puts out um, a, uh, um, a series of um, reports out to all those in Israel, these men of Israel, and, says, and gathers 330,000 men, and they come all together and defeat the Ammonites. Apparently, though, Nahash survives, because he's still here. And in, and in some ways, we, it actually says that he shows kindness to David. We don't know exactly sure what that means or what that looked like. It could be that he showed him some, some kindness by helping support David, maybe when he was fleeing from Saul, or maybe there was some kind of a peace treaty or, or trade agreement that was between David and Nahash at one point. We don't really know. But what, whatever, whatever it is, whatever the kindness that he showed to David... It looks like it's important to David to extend to him and to be faithful in responding in kindness to Nahash's son, Hanu, now who is now reigning in his place. So in order to do that, David sends his servants to Hanun, and he's going to show them some sympathy, his condolences, and to also communicate his faithfulness to Hanun, the son of Nahash. And David wasn't obligated to do this, in fact, if you think about this, this would have been the perfect time for him. This transfer of power was usually the most vulnerable time in a, na- in a nation when they were at their most fragile state. And he could have come in and just obliterated them, but instead he, he decides instead to use this as an opportunity to show covenantal kindness to Hanun. And so what can we learn from this? David's desire to show this, this kindness to outsiders teaching us that has said is just an unmistakable, it's an identifying characteristic of what it means to be God's anointed. It's part of his, of his very nature, God's anointed, his identity. And as the unique anointed one, Jesus Christ, the very image of God coming to flesh, he came to earth to extend grace and kindness to us. There was no obligatory peace treaty between, between us and God. There was, there was no one that deserved his love and his grace. In fact, it Scripture teaches that we're all, by nature, enemies of God, and we're willing participants in rebellion against His authority. But Jesus approaches us and extends His covenantal kindness. It's forged in His very blood. And the question that we have today is, how will we respond to Jesus' kindness, King Jesus' kindness toward us, His enemies? I'll let you consider your response to God's grace for you as we look now to how Hanun responds to David's kindness. So we look at now shame. How David's servants were shamed by Hanun. David's officials make it all the way to Hanun. 
And then rather receiving this, this warm welcome that they, they probably figured they, they would receive, they receive instead public humiliation. And we're told that Hanan's princess actually goes far as to denounce David's gracious overture as an act of treachery against him. And what they're doing in, in this way, they're, they're essentially calling into question David's very character as the anointed one of God. They pose just these two questions to Hanun that seem to persuade him pretty, pretty well. Do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? The answer they're looking for is no. Has not David sent his servants to you to search a city and spy it out and to overthrow it? The answer they're looking for is yes. So these two questions can really be summarized or can be condensed into one single sentence, which would be, David is not the good, trustworthy king that he has led you to believe that he is. And that's essentially what, what they're saying to Hanun, and it persuades him. But where have we heard that kind of question before? Sounds a lot like the crafty serpent, right? In Genesis chapter, chapter 3. Did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is God as good as he says he is? If so, why would he withhold something as delightfully sweet as this fruit of this tree? What God really wants to do is to restrict you from from greater pleasure. But what Adam and Eve failed to realize was that God was actually protecting them from what would inevitably plunge them into destruction. And ever since that day, those very questions or questions that are very much like those questions that call into question God's goodness have been repeated in all of our minds and all of our hearts. And when we believe them, when we, when we doubt the goodness of God, when we, when we doubt His goodness, we will get to seek His goodness elsewhere or what we define as what good is. We're, we'll mistake even those good gifts that God has given us as, as the source of our lasting happiness, as what's going to give us Comfort, what's going to give us meaning, what's going to give us identity or self-worth. And all those things are are inevitably going to lead us into disappointment and even to destruction. Not simply disappointment, but to ultimate destruction. And I was reminded about that truth in a very unlikely place this week. I was was watching um, Bill Murray's Groundhog Day. I'm sure you probably have all seen it before. Bill Murray plays this, this, this weatherman, his name is Phil, and he's stuck on September 2nd in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, where he's living the same day over and over again. He can't seem to, to make it to the next day. And, the, and, the, and what he wants more than anything else is to be out of there and back in Philadelphia. And um, so what, what's happening here is that he goes through these several loops, right? Until finally, if you remember the, the story much, he, he winds up in this bowling alley bar with these two guys, and he's talking a little bit, um, about how he's stuck in this, in this same day over and over again, and he's commiserating with them a little bit, and then he's about to drive them home because they're you know, out of their minds from, from drinking so much, and he's giving them a ride home. And on the way to, their, to, to bringing them home, he asks them a question. He says, what would it look like if there was no tomorrow? And they answer them, he says, without, without missing a beat, they say, well, there would be no consequences. And it just finally dawned on him that, that he can, because he's trapped in this endless cycle of February 2nd, he can just do anything he wants from day to day without any consequences to his actions. And at first, he's, he's pretty excited about it, and, 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 he, and he pursues whatever he thinks is going to make him happy from, from one day to the next. 
But eventually he finds out that it's, it's, he ends up more depressed than he was before he found out this information. He's more and more depressed because anything that he tries is not going to bring him the happiness that he was hoping that it would. And so the question is for us today, is that, is that where we're at? Is that where you're at? Are you, are you worn out chasing after those transitory things that, that are not going to give you lasting happiness, the lasting happiness that you're looking for? We'll come, back, we'll come back in a little bit to the goodness of God in a little bit, but let's turn back to our text this morning. The Ammonite princes are questioning David's integrity, his character. And, and they, they, no, they go beyond that now with, when, after Hanun is, is persuaded, and they actually treat David's kindness with contempt. They despise the gift of God's anointed king, and they're led astray by their own aspirations, whatever those might be. Maybe it was their plan all along to, to overthrow Israel. We don't really know. And, and, and Nahash might have been the, the only piece left in the puzzle, keeping the tree together with David and, and, and the Ammonites. And now that he's dead, they can pursue whatever they were looking to pursue. They, want, they could breach the treaty that they had with him. We don't know that for sure. That could be what's going on here. But whatever the case it is, they look at it as a perfect opportunity to, to strike out at David, God's anointed one, and they humiliate his ambassadors by shaving, it says, they shaving half of their beards off and then, the, and then slicing their robes right in, in the middle, right where their hips are. Now, in the culture of the day, um, the man's beard was his sake of, of, of dignity. And, I mean, maybe it's the same today, I don't know. But it's their source of dignity, a sense of what it means to be a man. But more than that, for the Israelites, it was actually a part of their identity as, as being the people of God. They were, they were instructed not to shave the fringes of their beards, or let alone shave it all off. And so when the Ammonites are shaving it, they're, just, they're disgracing the men. They're, they're, they're taking away their identity as the, as the people of God, and they're drawing even more attention to it by only shaving half of it off. By only shaving half of it off, it's, more, it's even more humiliating because people can see their humiliation, their disgrace. But they don't stop there because it says next, they also cut the robes at the waist. And this would have... For one, it would have exposed their nakedness to everybody around, which would have been publicly humiliating and shameful enough. But also what it does is it, it would sever the strands or the tassels that God had, had instructed them to place on their robes. And, and, and these, these braided tassels that are mentioned in Numbers 15, Deuteronomy 22, are meant to, the, to remind them at all times that they are to walk according to God's law. So they're, they're slicing that. They're slicing those reminders from their robes. And then how does David respond to this? Well, it would be easy to jump to chapter to, to verse 6, I should say, and go right into the heat of the battle and, and, and go right to the battlefront and, and find out what's, what's really happening here and, and, and get caught up in all, in all that, what's going on in the battlefield. But if to do that, we would miss out on seeing David's kindness and tenderness that he gives to his servants. He protects them from being further shamed Right, by providing them a place where they can, they can be covered, where they, where they can heal from, from these, these wounds. He tells them to, to stop in at, at Jericho, which would have been on the way back to Jerusalem. On their way back, they could have stopped, stopped there. That would have been uh, the place where they can have their beards regrown and they could, they could uh, uh, be um, shielded from further humiliation before the rest of Israel's public. So David, by doing this, is, is removing their shame. He's restoring their honor back to them. And isn't that a picture of what Jesus has done for us 
in the gospel, that, that he willingly takes on the humiliation and shame for our sin, not for any sin that he has ever done because he was sinless, so that we would be brought to a place of honor before him, before God the Father. And just as God provided that, that, that covering, uh, that, uh, that clothing to, 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 to cover up the, the nakedness and shame of Adam and Eve um, in the garden there with the animal skins, Jesus also covers the shame, our shame for our sin with the blood of his cross. But I also want to point out something else that Jesus' atoning work does on the cross, but it not only removes us the shame for our sin, the sin that we have against him, but also the shame that we experience from other people. Some of us need to hear that this morning, that, that, that Jesus not only removes the shame that we have because of the sin that we have toward Him, but also for the, the sin and the wrongs and the, uh, that we are experienced from other peoples, other people around us. David's servants didn't do anything wrong in this, in this situation. They were shamed for nothing that they had done wrong, but only by showing grace. They were just looking to show sympathy, show kindness, condolences. And David removed that same. So Jesus is the same for us. That Jesus removes the shame or that, the, the, the discomfort, the, the dirtiness that we feel when others wrong us, when, when they take advantage of us, when they abuse us. And by doing that, he restores our dignity and our values so that we can be freed now from that shame to, to, to serve him, to love other people, to love even the people who have wronged us. But what I want to point out is that it doesn't mean that, that suffering now is, is, is now going to cease because of it. Uh, we're, we're still going to suffer. We're still going to face uh, disrespect, indifference to the love that we show for others, maybe even hate in response to the love that we show other people. In fact, we as followers of Christ, living on mission, demonstrating declaring the gospel, heralding the good news of what Jesus has done, we should expect that. Jesus tells us as much in John chapter 15 that, that just as he was persecuted before us, we also will be persecuted, will be ridiculed. But it doesn't mean that, and it doesn't mean that that, that ridicule, that persecution that we experience is not going to sting, it's not going to hurt, it will. But it means that we're not defined by what others think about us and how they treat us. Right? We have security in knowing that, that we are eternally loved by God, that we can run to Jesus in those times and, and at any time because we can find our identity, we can find our comfort in his love for us. Amen? So we see how David has extended kindness and how that's been rejected. And now let's look at what is going to ensue after that, which is a skirmish. There's going to be a war. There's going to be a battle that's going to follow this. If public humiliation wasn't enough, the, uh, the Ammonites are going to uh, indict themselves a little bit further by actually bringing some troops against David and against Israel. The rejection of his kindness was, was just, so we're all on the same page, was not some kind of misunderstanding. It wasn't just some honest mistake or, or that they accidentally misinterpreted what, what David was trying to, to offer, what his motives or intentions were. We can see that because they humiliate these, these servants, but, but then after they humiliate the servants, now they're, they're gearing up for war. And it, it doesn't seem to have even, even crossed their minds to seek mercy, to seek restitution with David, the one that they have offended. Instead, it looks like that they're actually increasing their hostility. 
They're, and they're doing that by, by hiring not just, not, not just themselves going to war, but hiring these Syrian mercenaries to join their forces. Then I want you to notice, also, all to notice what's also in this text, actually something that's, that's, that's not in the text so much as what it says around the text, but we, we can see implied in the text is that although that David's offended by what the Ammonites are doing here, he isn't the first one to the battlefield. It's the, the Ammonites and the Syrians who we've hired are the aggressors here. They know that they've made themselves to be, as it says here, a stench to David. And they were odious to David in verse 6. But it seems like when they hear about that, when they know that they've offended him, it doesn't cause them to rethink the fact that they've humiliated him and disrespected him and disgraced him. It seems to actually fuel their, their hostility to make it worse. And so rather than making amends for these deplorable acts that they've had, they've made against David, they actually are, are further resolved to go into battle and to rebel against David. And it's at this point, it's good to remember that David is not just some other imperialistic king in the area. He's not, he's not just some other king that, that is trying to garner as many riches as he can or to take over or to, to place other people in subjection under him for his own vain glory. He's actually God's anointed. And, and rebellion against God's anointed one is not something that's taken lightly, as we're seeing here. Because rebellion against God's anointed one is akin to attacking God himself. And by aligning the Syrians along with them against David, the Ammonites are effectively setting themselves up against God himself. Isn't that the very definition of what evil is, right? Rebellion against God. And so, what they do is they devise what they think is just going to be this unbeatable strategy. They, they decide that they're going to divide and conquer. Literally. They're going to divide themselves between the two. The Ammonites are going to stay at the city. They're going to, they're going to remain themselves at the outposts of their capital city. Probably Rabbah, their capital cities at the times where they were. And at the same time, they're going to hire these Syrians that are going to stay in the open countryside, probably near Mediba, which is about four miles southwest of where Rabbah is. So they're effectively forcing Israel into this two-front war. So they're surrounded on both sides. And David chooses somewhat of an unlikely person to, to command his army, Joab, his nephew. Do you remember Joab? He's the one who was part of that, that, that duel around the pool of Gibeon, right? Against Abner, all the way back in chapter 2. And later we see in the, in the very next chapter, chapter 3, that after uh, Abner kills Joab's brother, Joab takes vengeance by murdering Abner as well in vengeance. And now David's placing him as the commander of his army. Interesting. Pretty interesting, isn't it? Somehow he... He feels that Joab is the right man for the job. We don't really know what's going on behind the scenes and what was playing out there, but we know that he has chosen Joab, and, and Joab also chooses his brother. Takes, he knows what's happening here. He sees the writing on the wall that, that they're, um, they have a, a two-front war to face, and so he takes his brother aside, Abishai, and tells him that they're going to divide forces as well, and that Joab's going to take on the Syrians, and the Ammonites are going to be taken care of by Abishai, and and, and then they decide that they're going to have a very simple strategy. If I'm going to pursue 
the Syrians, if I need your help, you'll come to my aid. And he says to Abishai, if you're against the Ammonites and, 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 you're, and it's proving too much for you, I'll come to your aid. It's a very simple plan. But then Joab comes up with something pretty astounding. He says something that uh, seems to be a little bit out of character for what we know of him, very little of him, but what we know doesn't seem to, to jive what he's about to say here. He says, Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. So he, he, he plans practically for this battle, but then he leaves the results. To God. The brothers' forces are split, but they remain unified in their allegiance to God and to their people. Job's battle cry is, is one that we should see of, of outright dependence upon God. He and Abishai have, have entrusted themselves to the good providence and the good sovereignty of God. And what we see him doing here is that in, in this moment of doubt and no place more likely for that to happen than on the battlefield is doubt. And right in this moment of doubt, he's inserting his faith into this moment. Right? He's not sure what the outcome is going to be, but he knows that God is ultimately in control of the situation. He knows that God well enough to understand that he will do what he knows to be righteous and good. He knows that in the end, his lasting hope, his trust is in God to save his people and to glorify himself throughout the world. That's what he's told his people Israel through the prophets. He didn't have a promise for victory in this present conflict, but what he's doing is he's maintaining his faith in the goodness and the trustworthiness of God and God's promises. And the same is true for us today. Right? It's our battle cry just as much as what was it was for Joab. May the, may the Lord do what seems good to him. We don't have certainty, certainty in this life about what's going to happen from day to day. We don't, we don't know what struggles we're going to face in the future on this side of eternity. But, but in the context of eternity, we have hope in our unchanging God. That he is always good. That he will always remain faithful to his promise to save his people. We have, we have comfort in his hesed. Amen? Joab had every right to be confident because he knew who God was. He knew the character of God. He, he drew his confidence from the knowledge of his covenant-keeping God. He trusted that God is good and that, God will, and that what God determines or what seems good to God is actually good. Even if it meant that it was going to be defeat at the hands of the Syrians and the hands of the Ammonites at this time. God's good promises and purposes are going to be accomplished. And we have that same hope today as well. That, that Jesus' atoning work has, has already won the victory over our enemies. The enemies of sin, Satan, death. And we now have the guarantee that His, his resurrection is our resurrection as well. And it's, it's the restoration of all creation. It's the eternal peace under the rule and kingship of Jesus Christ. So with that, let's, let's point now to the peace I just mentioned, the, the peace that comes with knowing God under His kingship. We're going to look at the serenity that's going to be happening in this present conflict as a result of this present conflict. 
There's not much detail given about the battle itself. It's really uh, very lackluster, and, and, and it's what's happening here wouldn't really make for a very good movie or you know anything like that because there's not much that we're told about. It just seems like it it, it just happens. But what happens that we do know happens is that that Joab is finally drawing near to battle against the Syrians, and it, it just appears that they just retreat without any any bloodshed whatsoever. They they see the armies of Israel coming, and they just Retreat, And then the Ammonites, after seeing that, do the same thing. They retreat into their cities. They fade into the background until chapter 12, and we'll see them in a little while. But it's astounding that it seems that there was, there was nothing that had happened. There's no bloodshed. The war is automatically over, and Joab just returns back to Jerusalem. And I'm sure that he was praising God all the way home, right? But while the, the Ammonites see cloister themselves behind the walls of, of their city, the Syrians on the other side, they want to double down on their efforts against Israel. And this time, they are the ones who are doing the recruiting. The Ammonites recruited them. Now the Ammonites are gone. Now they're going to recruit their own forces. Hadadazar invites more Syrians from Pastor Euphrates to, to enter into the conflict that they have with Israel. It's not over for them. And so what they do is they, he gathers all these forces together and they, they reach... They reach Helam, and they put Shobak at the helm here of the forces. And Joab doesn't return, though. We don't see him as the one that's going to command the people of Israel. Instead, we see David himself is going to enter into the battle battle here. Three times, it's interesting, if you look at the passage, three times it says that David sends. He sends servants first to, to extend kindness to Hanun. It shows, he shows um, kindness by sending also the servants to those who were disrespected and disgraced and dishonored and shamed. And now this third time, you see him sending Joab into the forces, but now all the sending is done. Now he himself is coming into the battle. And what we see happening here as he enters in, chapter, in verse 17, that there's a bloodbath that takes over. There's the very different result that happens as, as opposed to what happened previously. Shobak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, is fatally wounded. It looks like it may have been even David himself that thrust him with, with a sword or something that, that did, did him in. And then after that, it says that 700 chariots worth of men, as well as 40,000 horsemen are killed. However you add that up, there's a lot of people to a lot of dead bodies. Right, And after that, Hadadezar finally comes to terms with what's going on here. He sees that defeat is at his doorstep, and he wisely seeks peace, a peace treaty with David and with Israel. We know, from our perspective as we're looking at this, that, that his, his defeat was inevitable, but he didn't know that at the time. He, along with, with the Ammonites that had previously hired him, were blinded by their, by their desires to dethrone David and to, to take on God's anointed. And I think in this way, when you look at it from that perspective, this passage is, is a kind of a microcosm of, of Psalm chapter 2. If you're familiar with Psalm chapter 2, it, it, it opens up with, with, Why do the nations rage? And why are the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against the rulers and they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed by saying, let us burst their bonds apart. And let's cast away their cords from, from among us. 
And that's exactly what we see happening here in our tale this morning. The Ammonites, along with the Syrians, have attempted to, to dethrone David, God's anointed. It's in their mutual interest, it looks like, to, to remove David from the picture and to, to crumble his kingdom. And isn't that exactly the same way that the world sees Jesus as well, in God's authority? He stands in the way of freedom, they would sell us. His authority is simple, it's simply just a bunch of moral strictures that, that, that are chains that, that need to be broken, that need to be cast off. That's at the heart of the mission of those who do not bow to Jesus. That, and that would be us as well. When we're left to our own devices, when, 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 when we have not placed ourselves under the kindness and, and, and the authority of Jesus Christ, we're going to invent all kinds of feeble ways that we can try to dethrone God. But it's futile. Instead, as Psalm chapter 2 is that we just read, it goes on to say later on, we'd be wise to, to serve the Lord with fear, to rejoice with trembling, to kiss the Son. Who do you think that might be? To kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are those who take refuge in Him. The truth is that there's, there's absolutely no way There's no way for us on our own to avert the wrath of God, that His righteous wrath, His holy indignation toward rebellious sinners like you and me. It's only instead by by taking cover under the anointed one of Jesus Christ, His Son, that He is the King of kings. He is the one who has extended to us kindness. Kindness to us when we were far off. And He didn't just send dignitaries in his place to, to, do, to, to do kindness to us, to, to extend his kindness. Yes, he's, he says he sent the, the prophets to us, like Samuel, who spoke on, on his behalf. That's true. But we're reminded in, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that in these last days, he has spoken to us, as God the Father has spoken to us, by his Son, that's Jesus Christ, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's a reminder that that God's plan from the very beginning was to Himself descend from heaven to earth to express the immeasurable kindness and compassion and grace toward us as sinners. Jesus took on flesh and, and then he went to the cross to bear the judgment for the sin that, that we deserved. And Paul reminds us in, in Romans chapter 2 that, that he is patient, that he's a God that is patient. He awaits for us to humbly accept the gift of his son Jesus Christ. But his patience, it says, Paul reminds us, is, it should not be interpreted as weakness on God's part or, or that God does not take sin seriously. Instead, it's his patience that's extended to us. It's to, intended to, to humble us to the point where, that we repent and we turn to him, that we, that we bow to the Son, that we kiss the Son. Sin and rebellion will be dealt with. It has been dealt with. The, cause, the consequences for our treason against God and against his Holy One and just God will be exacted 
It will be exacted either on Jesus Christ, if you take coverage under the Son, Jesus Christ, or it will be exacted on us for eternity. That, and we will face instead the, 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 the fierce, the white-hot wrath of God's just judgment for eternity. But as I said, to those who surrender to Jesus and take coverage under the substitutionary sacrifice, we'll experience eternal peace, serenity with God. So I leave us this morning now with these questions meant for all of us. That we accept the, the kindness of King Jesus. We, we allow His wrath-absorbing work to remove your shame, the shame that's caused by your sin, the shame that is caused by others' sin against you. Let me ask as well, are, are you plagued by doubt this morning? Are you doubting the goodness of God? In a world full of, of empty promises, we can still depend on Jesus Christ, amen? That He is the, the one that is going to remain true and faithful to His promises. That He is the one that we can trust in. He is our, he's our living hope. Father, we thank you again for the precious promises of your word. And we, we thank you for, for giving us sight all these thousands of years later into the fulfillment of your promises. That we see those things in part, but then, but then we see the fulfillment of those in Jesus Christ. And we, we thank you, Jesus, for coming to earth, living the perfect life, for dying that, that sacrifice in our place, absorbing the wrath that we should have ourselves experienced at the hand of God because of our sins, but, but because of your great kindness toward us. We can now take coverage under, under what your son has done because of what Jesus has done, so we can now have life abundantly here and now, and ultimately and in more fulfillment when you come back for us one day. We look forward to that day. So Lord, this, this morning as we continue to worship, I pray that, um, that we would leave here reminded that all that we do with our lives is meant to be an act of worship as a response to the kindness that you've shown for us. So let us display that kindness toward others. Let us reflect that kindness as those who are now belonging to you as your children so that we may see others come to the, the knowledge and to repentance in Jesus Christ so they could understand and experience and realize the great kindness and love of God for eternity and at peace with him. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.